Stanford University. All right, welcome. It's wonderful to see such a large audience. I'm Deborah Satz, and on behalf of the McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society, I want to welcome everyone to this year's Arrow Lecture. These lectures are sponsored by the Center and also this year by the Woods Institute for the Environment and um, the Economics Department. These lectures are endowed in honor of our colleague Ken Arrow. As you undoubtedly know, Ken is an economist whose body of work engages centrally with questions that are also political and ethical. He's a powerful counterexample to the division of labor that has kept economists, political scientists, and philosophers in separate buildings, writing and speaking in ignorance of what others are doing. Of course, he can do this because he knows everything. <laughs> He's published widely on topics such as social choice theory, general equilibrium theory, the economics of information, healthcare, and the environment. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1972, and I'm proud to say was also a founding member of the Ethics and Society program at Stanford. Tonight's Arrow Lecture is also an economist whose work touches centrally on big ethical questions that are at the heart of our world's most pressing problems. Jeffrey Sachs is Ketelet Professor of Sustainable Development and Professor of Health Policy and Management at Columbia University and Director of its Earth Institute. He's also a public figure in policy debates, and I was interested to learn today from Ken Arrow that um, he first encountered Jeffrey Sachs as a junior in his graduate course in economics, where Jeffrey Sachs distinguished himself as the best student in the class and clearly learned um, from his professor. That's a good, we like that model here. Um, Jeffrey Sachs has also been advisor to UN Secretary Generals Kofi Annan and Ban Ki-moon and advised many governments and development agencies. From 2002 to 2006, Jeffrey Sachs was special advisor to the United Nations on the Millennium Development Goals, the internationally agreed goals to reduce extreme poverty, disease, and hunger by 2015. In 2004 and 2005, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's also the author of two landmark books on sustainable global development, Commonwealth Economics for a Crowded Planet, and The End of Poverty, Economic Possibilities for Our Time. Both books are marked not only by compelling descriptions of the state of our current world, but they're animated by social hope by a sense of what is possible. They imagine a world without extreme poverty or environmental disaster and propose steps to make such an imagined world in actuality. In this sense, Sachs is not your average economist or social policy advocate. The ideas that he proposes are not small reforms of our current world, but represent a substantial change but he seeks to show that such a substantial change is both feasible and necessary. Necessary because a world in which a billion people don't have their basic needs met, where they die from easily preventable malaria or hunger, is not acceptable. Feasible 
because a large influx of international aid and specific interventions in areas such as health and soil fertility can make a difference. Whether in the end you agree with his concrete proposals or not, his work throws down a challenge to all of you who think that extreme poverty is a misfortune, but also an unhappy fact of life. It forces you, all of us, to confront the limits of the possible, what kind of world might actually be achievable if we only had the will. After the lecture, there will be time for questions, and people should line up, and I think there are four microphones that have been set up. I can't see all of them from here, but I think there are two on the bottom and two on the top, and that will facilitate the discussion and will rotate the microphones. Also, for people interested in the issues that tonight's lecture touch, touches upon, I invite you to um, visit the Ethics Center website and the website for the new program in human rights at Stanford, housed in the Center for Development, Democracy, and the Rule of Law. I also invite you to check out a conference that's going in this weekend at Stanford called When the Shooting Stops, a conference on post-conflict health in the developing world organized by the Stanford Association for International Development. And I think there are flyers somewhere outside. But now, please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Jeffrey Sachs, who'll be speaking to us on designing a path to sustainable development. Deborah, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the opportunity to be together with you at this glorious university, which as much as any place in the world has helped us to think clearly about the challenges of sustainable development, the topic of my discussion tonight. And let me confirm something which I know absolutely to be true. Uh, Ken Arrow does really know everything. <laughs> I've never found a subject uh, on which he cannot expatiate with the most incredible detailed knowledge and wisdom and interconnections. And I can also tell you that was true 37 years ago as well, uh, when I was uh, as fortunate as can be in life to be able to learn economics uh, at uh, from the true master of our time. So when the invitation came to be able to give this year's Aero Lecture, of course, it, it was irresistible on both counts of being with you at Stanford and having a chance to brainstorm together with you in an evening and to thank you for all the wonderful things that you do at this university, but also to celebrate Ken, who for 37 years for me has been the paragon of uh, brilliance and integrity and commitment and uh, a model for, for everybody uh, in the world that's trying to think through complicated problems. And the topic that I want to talk about tonight, sustainable development, is simply the most complicated problem on the planet. It's far more complicated than the problems of uh, war and peace, though we don't do a very good job on those. 
Uh, it's more complicated uh, than the problems of a recession. It's more complicated than uh, many of the other problems that we grapple with. It raises just about every puzzle that a uh, policy conundrum can raise. It would be great if we could just ignore it uh, and say this one's too hard. But the fact of the matter is that for reasons that I'll stress, not only is it complicated, but I believe it is the defining challenge of our time. And that many of the problems that we're confronting right now, whether it is a war in Afghanistan or instability in other parts of the world, actually at their root are already uh, in fact uh, derived from crises of sustainable development. We just don't classify them that way because we don't see things uh, in the right categories. And when there's instability in the planet, when there's unrest, uh, when uh, there's violence or terrorism, we put it uh, to political uh, and uh, ideological uh, prisms, whereas in fact at the core often are hungry and poor people and societies in disarray because they're already experiencing the leading edge of climate change or environmental degradation of other sorts. So I believe that the problem of sustainable development is an inescapable problem. It's a problem that uh, my generation certainly will not uh, solve. Uh, and so for the students here, this is yours, baby. Uh, this is your problem because for the next decades, this will be a growing reality that you will face, like it or not. And the headlines may scream energy or they may scream food crisis or they may say something about a climate disaster or floods and so forth. But if you view this as part of an interconnected human, physical, planetary system, you'll see that these problems which will dominate your lives, in fact, will be challenges of sustainable development. Now, why is this set of problems that I'm going to discuss and that we will then discuss in question and answer? And by the way, when we come to that, I'm happy with comments also. You don't have to say, so where's the question, as long as it's short enough so that we can uh, have a number of people participating in that. Why are the problems of sustainable development so complicated? Because just about everything in the core features of the problem of designing a path to sustainable development takes us beyond the normal. Uh, the normal of how our social institutions work and certainly how our most successful social institution for resource allocation, and that's the market, works. These are problems that the market cannot solve. And whenever you're in that category, it's a lot tougher because the market really has a lot of advantages of motivation of self-interest and a high degree of self-organization. And there's nothing about the problems of sustainable development that are going to be solved by self-organizing behavior or by market forces alone. So I count at least six features of the problem that I want to put on the table first to emphasize how complicated it is. Uh, 
First, these are global problems, uh, almost by definition. Climate change is the paradigmatic global problem in that the greenhouse gas emissions anywhere uniformly mix in the atmosphere within about 30 days. And in the end, therefore, it doesn't matter where the emissions come from, the global effects are the sum of a truly global phenomenon. And this is quite tough because our institutions, by and large, are local and national, and our capacity to cooperate globally, as you've noticed, is pretty slim indeed. Uh, and global problems in general are the very toughest political problems uh, that we face, and we don't have the institutions yet to address them. Second, this is inherently an intertemporal set of problems. Uh, that means that they are unfolding gradually over time, or perhaps not so gradually, but the time dimension is critical. There is a stock effect rather than a flow effect. Certain pollution problems are basically problems of flow. Uh, you put up sulfur oxides uh, in uh, burning coal, and they get washed out by the rain. They may have an unhappy consequence of acid rain, but if you stop the sulfur oxide emissions, the problem goes away because it's the flow of these emissions that counts. But for most of the problems of sustainable development, it's the accumulation. Uh, it's the greenhouse gas stock in the atmosphere, not the flow that counts. Uh, it's the uh, stock of habitat destruction that counts and so forth. It's the amount of uh, fossil water depletion that counts. And stock problems, uh, which evolve over time, are complicated, partly because they can be irreversible. And you can pass thresholds and tipping points that you don't see coming. And in general, as a species, uh, you notice we are not very good at thinking ahead. And the time horizon of our political institutions is to the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November uh, every other year at, in our country, meaning that we're bound by an election cycle which is so out of kilter with the problems that we face that we, at this point in our country, barely think ahead at all. Third is that the problems involve ecosystems. And since this is one of the world's greatest centers of the study of ecology, uh, you'll know all that it entails to say that uh, we're talking about complex interconnected systems of biota and the abiotic environment. And nothing about ecosystems sits well with traditional ideas about a market economy. A market economy is all about well-defined private property rights and uh, separable individualistic ownership. And nothing about an ecosystem, in fact, is of that character. Ecosystems are about flows. They're about migration. They're about movements across boundaries, whereas private property is about boundaries and fences and stopping migration and uh, defining uh, exclusive areas. Ecosystems don't work that way. And so we have a fundamental disjunction between the way that a market economy works and the way that the physical environment works. And we get away with a lot often, uh, and throughout history have gotten away with a lot, because 
our weight on the ecosystems was simply uh, limited enough that even the uh, false assumptions of private property and uh, privatization of natural systems, while maybe inconvenient and uh, incorrect, wasn't devastating. But we're no longer going to be able to get away with uh, pretenses anymore about the nature of ecosystem functions, because almost all ecosystems in the world, in almost all places, are under stress right now. And that's a technical statement, not a moral statement or a a uh, flag-waving statement, that's a statement that comes from very careful delineation of ecosystem functions, for instance, in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. A fourth feature of the Sustainable Development Challenge is profound uncertainty. We don't really know well enough how Earth physical systems work, and we don't really understand all that well how our own society uh, sits on top of ecosystem functions. And so we're doing a lot of things to the planet that we don't understand. And climate change is, of course, again, the most important of all of these cases, but it's by no means the only one. The list of things we know we don't know, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, uh, is uh, pretty long. Uh, God, I hate to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but... Um, <laughs> In any event, the list of things we don't even know we don't know, which is his point, was his point in that one wise thing he said uh, in, in a career of disaster, um, is also huge. And it just strikes me, for example, the very close call we had with ozone depletion that I think stands as our existential situation right now. It is almost almost by coincidence that we discovered the ozone depletion effects of chlorofluorocarbons. No one was looking for this at all, at all, until 1970 when Paul Crutzen started to ask the question of whether the water vapor from the proposed uh, supersonic transports might be a danger to the ozone. And that was the start of several years of incredibly powerful scientific inquiry. Then Roland and Molina, a few years after that, realized that maybe it wasn't the water vapor that was the most dangerous, but it was chlorine. And then the realization that there was a building amount of chlorofluorocarbons in the uh, troposphere, which was gradually uh, reaching the stratosphere. Then the accident uh, of uh, having uh, satellites in place uh, to be able to take a picture of an ozone hole over Antarctica that nobody had ever dreamt existed, as well as a British expedition that verified what seemed an absolute impossibility. And I, I find that unbelievable, actually, that how close we came to truly an unmitigated disaster without even knowing that anything was happening at all until a 15-year period of a lucky combination of some brilliant science and some lucky observation by having the right kinds of satellites in place told us what otherwise we wouldn't have known. We can be sure that we're doing that kind of thing 
in a dozen different ways right now that we don't understand and that will make great PhD dissertations. And all I can tell you is hurry to find them before we reach irreversible uh, points uh, in uh, our anthropogenic forcings of the ecosystem. Uncertainty is huge. We know now from serious uh, psychological uh, study that our capacities to think clearly about uncertainty are limited, to say the least. We don't handle uncertainty well. From a psychological point of view, uh, we don't handle uh, the questions of uh, prudence very well. We don't handle the questions of insurance and gambling all that well. Uh, and uncertainty also has turned out to be the easiest prey for deliberate disinformation, which is a major part of the story. It's not as if the world is in a, a unified quest for knowledge. There are a lot of vested interests which are in a, in a powerful quest to confuse you and me. Uh, and they spend uh, tremendous amounts of money to mess with our heads. And this is a very serious problem. Uh, ExxonMobil and others have done that for a long time. We're told they've stopped. I'm not so sure. The Wall Street Journal may do it for a game or for deeper reasons. But every day, our leading business uh, newspaper preys on uncertainty to confuse the public and delay action on the agenda of sustainable development. So uncertainty is the fourth aspect of this problem that's quite tough. A fifth aspect is that a central part of the forcings of sustainable development are the uh, ramifications of population growth. Well, if ever there was a, a social issue that's difficult to talk about and reach an understanding about and clear thinking about, it's population. And uh, I would say uh, economics has never really uh, solved the problem of how to think about uh, social well-being with a changing population. Who do you count? How do you count uh, increased population? Is that something good? Is that something bad? And of course, the very practical questions about what should be done or can be done about continued rapid population growth in the world befuddles us, and we hardly talk about it anymore. This is a subject that really was started here by Paul Ehrlich, uh, and uh, who did a huge service to humanity uh, in his uh, warnings uh, about uh, rapid population growth. It's an issue that went off the radar screen erroneously. Uh, it's an issue that we don't talk about honestly and don't think about clearly, but it's a major factor uh, in the sustainable development challenge. And the sixth area that makes this very hard, in my view, is that solutions for sustainable development, in my opinion, fundamentally involve large-scale technological transformation. Values, I'm going to emphasize count, behavior counts, but I believe fundamental, in fact, I would say the sine qua non of success on designing a path to sustainable development is large-scale technological change. And here, too, markets are not all that they're, uh, th that they're uh, uh, cut out to be often, because uh, the economics of information and technological change shows that uh, the problems of 
inducing technological change and especially inducing technological change along targeted pathways is something also that goes far beyond the marketplace. Now let me pause just to note that if you think about the issues of politics and institutions, intertemporal reasoning, functioning of ecosystems, uncertainty, population, and technology, Ken Arrow has been at the center of every one of those issues in the most fundamental ways. So if we have anything sensible to say about it, uh, it's because Ken was there first and helped us to understand how to address each of these problems. But I would say they're hard, putting them all together is very hard, and clearly, as important as this issue is, we've not made a lot of headway in the last 30 years in actually designing a pathway to sustainable development, though we've done a lot of good in thinking about what the nature of the problem is. So that leads me to uh, the perhaps uh, obvious question, so what is sustainable development? Because I haven't defined it yet. I've defined all of the things which make it a hard problem, but I've not said what it is. And in fact, there is no settled definition uh, by any means of what sustainable development entails. The term was brought into global policy by a commission in 1987 headed by uh, Gru Harlem Brundtland, uh, then Prime Minister of Norway and one of uh, the great policy leaders of our time. Uh, and uh, the definition that the Brundtland Commission gave for sustainable development was a very general definition uh, that said sustainable development is meeting the needs of the current generation without hindering the ability of future generations to meet their needs. It's not an operational definition, unfortunately. What are needs? How do you define it? Uh, and uh, how do you operationalize it? It's too general uh, to be helpful, in, in my view, uh, though it put the concepts and the challenge uh, in front of the world in, in a brilliant way. So I want to focus on something a little bit more specific. And the question that I believe is posed by sustainable development is the question of whether the world, including all of its major regions, can continue to achieve material progress and particularly progress of the poorest parts of the world to uh, escape from the trap of poverty and achieve that progress in a way which is consistent with the continued healthy functioning of the Earth's ecosystems. So the question for me really is literally putting the two pieces together. Can we have development, which means improved material conditions of life, doesn't necessarily mean GNP per capita, but it does mean improved material conditions of life in some meaningful metric in all parts of the world consistent with healthy ecosystem functioning. And there are at least three ways that this could go badly wrong. One is the argument that the answer is obviously no to a lot of people, that we are in a major overshoot 
uh, historical phenomenon that the world has uh, lived in recent years, in, recent, in the last two centuries, off a stock of fossil fuels uh, and uh, off an ability to mine the natural environment and load the atmosphere with greenhouse gases and deplete vital water aquifers and so forth in a way that will come to an end, perhaps to a screeching halt, uh, and therefore lead to a calamitous broad-based decline of living standards, the limits to growth uh, idea, which though heavily uh, attacked and, uh, and uh, ostensibly debunked uh, back in 1972 when it was first published uh, as a specific study, in fact, I believe continues to haunt us to this day. Are we really sure that we're not in, a, uh, in, in an unavoidable global overshoot? There's a second way that uh, sustainable development can fail, and that would be for broad regions of the world to be trapped by changing ecology or by their other circumstances so that they remain mired in uh, gut-wrenching, uh, socially destabilizing poverty. There are parts of the world in my opinion and my experience on the ground that are trapped right now and getting worse. Uh, and I put the drylands of Africa, the Middle East, and Central Asia as the leading edge of catastrophe on the planet right now. The swath of uh, land from northern Senegal and the west of Africa across Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, which just had a coup, Chad, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, Somalia, and northern Uganda, which is uh, just to, at least temporarily out of violence right now, northern Kenya, across the Red Sea into Yemen, uh, into those two happy uh, abodes, Iran and Iraq, uh, and then uh, north into northeast into Central Asia, into uh, Afghanistan and uh, the uh, desert provinces uh, of Pakistan is a stretch of about 10,000 miles of instability. And from what I've seen with my own eyes and at least my attempt to understand that that is not instability of Islamic extremism. That's instability of water scarcity and hunger. And a traditional pastoralist or semi-pastoralist system of life, which is under such profound stress that society and culture can't hold together anymore. We categorize those crises as Al-Qaeda. We characterize those crises as Islamic extremism uh, and so forth. Uh, we talk about political or military solutions to these crises. I, I find it uh, tragically misdiagnosed because these are the poorest places in the world. Climate change is already hitting them first because they were places where water is already a 
a barrier uh, and a, an edge of survival, maybe 400 to 600 millimeters of rainfall per year, but now it's become much more unstable. And at the same time, there are encroachments of, uh, uh, of uh, other sorts, uh, of uh, other settled populations into uh, traditional migratory lands. There are now barriers of uh, international boundaries drawn in the sand, which prevent uh, traditional lifestyles from functioning. And there's massive population growth. And all of that is a recipe for huge instability. And so the second way that sustainable development can go wrong is like it is going wrong now. And I find it pertinent that not only is it going wrong, but we can't even see it for what it is. We see it in political and ethnic and religious and ideological terms, but we can't even see straight in front of our eyes what is an ecological crisis. And this is something very real for the world and I believe likely to spread on the current trajectory. And of course, the third way that all of this can go badly wrong is that it could be that our resource base is uh, sufficiently stressed and limited that economic growth itself, broadly speaking, grinds to a halt, not a disastrous overshoot, but a capacity to achieve on a broad base continued economic progress. And if that happens, everything about our politics will become even harder than it is right now. I don't have to tell California what it's like to be in a crisis right now, uh, where everything seems to be a zero-sum struggle, and there's no relief from the underlying economy. But write that uh, at a large scale for a nation and for the world if it happens to be the case that we hit barriers of uh, energy, water, uh, food productivity, and so forth, and then the rise of China uh, becomes vastly more complicated uh, than it is right now for us because what uh, would right now maybe erroneously seem like a zero-sum struggle could actually become one. And the inequalities of income in our country, uh, which are manageable in a context of broadly rising prosperity, can become an extreme social crisis internally because there is no relief. There really is a, uh, a, a, a zero-sum uh, fight for position. So these are ways that sustainable development can go wrong. And the question that I think we face, and especially the students, your generation will face uh, in the decades of the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, 2050s, is whether there is such thing as a path that satisfies the ecological realities and at the same time allows for very broad-based economic progress and does it without leaving out significant parts of the world. Because while one would like to say, okay, we're going to do it for three-fourths of the world, but we can't really figure out how to do it in the drylands of Africa. I think that won't work anymore because of the spillovers of failure and of violence and of instability and of migration, population movement. It also, in my opinion, wouldn't work from a moral point of view, but I'm even speaking just in a very rough, pragmatic way. So 
what are the risks that could make that possible? I think there are uh, basically uh, two major uh, challenges that we face right now, and we don't fully know how to assess those. One is the challenge of depletion of vital resources. Uh, it's pretty clear that conventional oil is uh, limited, and whether it's peaked five years ago or peaking in 10 years or peaking in 25 or 30 years may make a big practical difference, but it's limited, and we're already in a global regime where marginal costs of uh, conventional oil or near conventional oil are much higher now than they were 15 or 20 years ago. And there are arguably other kinds of mineral resources that are limited and fossil water, I would put in the category along with fossil fuel as one of the great barriers for hundreds of millions of people. There are vast parts of the world right now and the two main ones are the North China Plain and the Indo-Gangetic Plain. Uh, but I'd add uh, the American Midwest with not quite the same temporal emergency that are living on fossil aquifers that are being discharged at a rate uh, far, far greater than recharge rates. And so, like fossil fuels, that's a big puzzle. But the second kind of risk is probably we've come to understand much more important, perhaps, than the sheer running out of uh, key resources, and that is pervasive environmental degradation. And I think that this uh, comes to a famous uh, bet uh, that was made uh, by uh, your Professor Paul Ehrlich and uh, Julian Simon over uh, resource scarcity, where the measure of that bet was what was going to happen to several uh, commodities prices. And the commodities prices fell over a period of years, and uh, Julian Simon and, and uh, uh, the free market ilk announced, you see, the world is uh, uh, not uh, facing scarcity, ingenuity can overcome scarcity. But I think if the bet uh, had been uh, stated in terms of uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich's uh, great uh, findings and contributions about ecosystem degradation or Peter Vitusik's uh, brilliant measurements about the extent of uh, human, uh, human appropriation of ecosystem services, we look at this in a completely different way, and probably what we've learned about sustainable development over the last 25 years is to think that this is not really about running out of iron ore or nickel uh, or uh, copper or various minerals in the Earth's crust, uh, maybe not even running about running out of fossil fuels, but rather reaching limits of anthropogenic interference in fundamental Earth systems. So it's running out of the atmospheric uh, capacity to load greenhouse gases. It's running out of the ecosystem capacity to absorb diversion of fresh water. It's running out of the ecosystem capacity to absorb human nitrogen fluxes and so forth. And this seems to be far more fundamental than even the very real risks of pure depletion effects. And nothing, in my view, has shown uh, 
evidence yet at a global scale that we're addressing the degradation challenges, even if the depletion challenges turn out not to be the real limiting factors. One of the things that Peter Vitusik and uh, Pam Matson and colleagues at Stanford have uh, done uh, more than anybody else on the planet is to show the extent of the anthropogenic interference in key systems. And a term that I like uh, to describe all of this is Paul Crutzen's concept of the Anthropocene uh, as a way to summarize this. Crutzen, remember, was the first to look at water vapor and ozone depletion, won the Nobel Prize uh, for that work, and coined the idea that uh, our anthropogenic interference in Earth system processes now is so large that we've entered a new geologic epoch. We've left the epoch of the Holocene, which began 10,000 years ago when the Pleistocene ended, the Ice Age uh, uh, retreated, and uh, we entered the age of civilization and agriculture. And what Crutzen says is, no, now we're in a new epoch where by formal geologic criteria, uh, Earth stratigraphy and other Earth processes, we are in what literally needs to be classified, not just metaphorically, but literally as a new geologic era driven by humanity, the Anthropocene. And what Vitusig and Crutzen and others are emphasizing is that there's not one dimension to this. This is pervasive, and the list would include destruction of habitat uh, and consequent loss of species abundance, and that's both marine and terrestrial fundamental breaks in the hydrologic cycle because of the massive diversion of uh, surface runoff from rivers as well as the depletion of fossil aquifers, massive nitrogen loading from the 100 million metric tons of nitrogen-based fertilizers that need to be deployed to feed the planet and by the way, organic farming is no escape from that. It's not even feasible to feed 7 billion people with organic farming. But even if it were, it requires massive nitrogen loading that does all of the things that chemical nitrogen loading does in terms of massive environmental uh, degradation, which includes the eutrophication now of more than 130 major estuaries around the world with significant hypoxic zones. Of course, this includes the greenhouse gas loadings led by carbon, but also including methane and nitrous oxide and the, uh, uh, and, uh, the fluorocarbons. It includes uh, massive losses uh, from invasive species uh, that are rearranged by human-induced uh, new biogeography. Uh, it includes what seems to be an increasing burden of zoonotic diseases as the human population pushes against animal reservoirs leading to SARS, leading to H1N1, leading to uh, avian flu, uh, leading to AIDS uh, epidemic, which is a zoonosis from perhaps around 1930, according to the molecular clock. Uh, and of course, it includes the loadings of toxics from petrochemicals. Uh, so all of these phenomena are uh, pervasive, growing dramatically, and basically at the core reflecting humanity's success uh, in overtaking 
all ecosystems through a population that has risen tenfold since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and a level of material throughput that has risen between 10 and 100 times uh, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And we're now weighing on the environment so heavily that the effects are felt everywhere, not just the one climate change or this or that. Uh, and as everybody knows now but doesn't fully appreciate, uh, the effects on Earth processes are so pervasive that even when we talk about something specific like the carbon dioxide loadings of fossil fuel use, it's not only climate change but it's ocean acidification, uh, which means that these geoengineering solutions are a bit terrifying. Uh, the idea that you could have fixes of putting uh, sulfates into the uh, troposphere and so forth to offset the carbon dioxide, all of this seems to be madness uh, from the point of view of our single planet. If it were an experiment in a petri dish, it would be worth trying. But for the planet as a whole, we don't have offsets to the magnitude of the human effects. So what does this mean? What can be done? Does it absolutely mean that uh, civilization has overshot so fundamentally? Are there ways still to achieve material progress and so forth? Well, now we have to unpack all of this. What are the underpinnings of these anthropogenic forcings and what are the options that we face? What can be done about them? And there, I think, once we get to specifics, it starts looking, uh, in a way, paradoxical. On the one hand, I'm going to argue this is utterly a solvable problem, probably at costs that are actually quite modest compared to anything that counts. On the other hand, because of those six features that I started with, it's a very difficult problem to solve, not because there's no way out, but because coordinating the way out, politically, institutionally, socially, is such a big challenge. So the first thing to notice is that the underlying drivers of these human-induced changes are rather small in number, actually. And surprisingly, perhaps, at least for me, it's counterintuitive, uh, the number one driver of all of this damage is the food sector. We're almost back to where Malthus put us uh, in 1798 when he said that the population would outstrip the carrying capacity of the planet. And we have probably said for 200 years, well, ingenuity has allowed us to grow more food than population, so we've kept ahead of the Malthusian uh, spectacle. There are a couple of problems with that. First, it ignores the obvious fact that there are one billion people who struggle for survival. They don't have enough to eat right now, so that's a first footnote that one would want to add. A second footnote is that in addition to that, there are about one and a half billion people who have severe micronutrient deficiencies on top of the one billion who have macronutrient deficiencies, so that adds up to about two and a half billion. You could add an extra billion people who are malnourished but not undernourished, the obesity epidemic that's spreading around the world, which reflects another kind of failure of the food system. But the last point I would add, in addition to the fact that we haven't really fed the planet properly, is that the weight of agriculture is by far the biggest single factor 
of instability and non-sustainability on the planet. For example, again, for me, a little bit counterintuitive until you think about it, uh, the food sector is the largest contributor of greenhouse gases, bigger than the power sector, bigger than, fossil, bigger than uh, energy use, I should say, bigger than the transport sector. And the reason is that it accounts for about 34% of total greenhouse gas emissions. It includes the deforestation that's coming from clearing land for arable and for pasture land. It includes the methane that is emitted from uh, anaerobic respiration in ruminant livestock as well as uh, paddy rice. It includes the nitrous oxide that uh, is emitted from uh, the reactive nitrogen in the fertilizers that's not absorbed by the plants. It includes the direct energy inputs to agriculture. But we've not figured out how to feed the planet in a sustainable manner till now. We figured out more or less how to feed a lot of the planet, but not sustainably. So Malthus still, 212 years later, posed a problem that remains an absolutely relevant problem. The second of the three big drivers is energy use, of course, and mainly through the carbon dioxide uh, emitted uh, as a greenhouse gas, both in the power sector, the industrial sector, the transport sector, and uh, residential and commercial buildings. And the third of the major drivers is industrial toxics, uh, the uh, persistent pollutants that are emitted in various quite specific industries, especially petrochemical industries and refining industries and smelting and, and, uh, and metals industries. When you think about those challenges, in my opinion, as you delve down in ways that I can't do in any justice right now, the first thing I think we see is that those are bounded problems that actually have definable solutions to them. They're not completely out of control problems. When we think about how to shift to a sustainable food economy, when we think about how to shift to a sustainable energy economy, and when we think about industrial ecology to eliminate the uh, extrusion of wastes, uh, of toxic wastes, all of those have pretty good answers available, though with some complications. Now, the first answer, I believe, is stabilizing the world's population. That can't be done at today's level of 6.8 billion people short of a disaster, because there's a lot of population momentum coming from the fact that there are a lot of young people, more than their adult uh, parent, parental population, reflecting the fact that in the past 25 years, fertility rates have been way above uh, replacement rate. So there's pure population momentum of about 1 billion in the world that is the amount the population would grow if we immediately reverted worldwide to a replacement rate fertility of two, a little bit over two. It's unlikely, therefore, peacefully 
that we could stabilize the world's population at under 8 billion. But there's reasonable uh, possibility of stabilizing the world's population at well under 9 billion. And that's because there are very deep tendencies, if the facilitation is made, to enable poor populations where fertility rates remain the highest to voluntarily reduce their fertility rates through access to family planning, contraception, and education for girls, which is the triple combination together with child survival that can induce a dramatic reduction of fertility rates within a 10-year period of time. So the first of the solutions that I would propose is that we start taking seriously, once again, the population challenge. We're adding currently 75 to 80 million net population to the world every year. The growth rate has come down to about 1.1 to 1.2% per year, still very high, but we're on a trajectory to reach nine or even 10 or 11 billion people and could be on a trajectory to stabilize well under nine billion people. That would make everything infinitely easier. By the way, the medium UN forecast for population for Africa for Sub-Saharan Africa is that on current trajectory, no, on an optimistic view, but not so optimistic, Africa's population will rise from 800 million to 1.8 billion in 2050. And I can tell you my best judgment as a development economist is Africa cannot develop if that's the scenario that actually unfolds. We would need a far faster transition to low fertility for Africa to be able to escape from its many challenges of poverty and ecological degradation. The second part of this is a move to sustainable agriculture. And this is a combination of technological choices, intensification of agriculture in certain ways, but also substitutions of capital for resources. We could use a lot less nitrogen and still get the nitrogen effect, which is vital, through microdosing and smarter farm systems. It requires more capital to do it. We could get a lot more yields in uh, existing farmland through better landscape management and local management of water supplies, and there's a lot of technology to do that. One big problem with all of that is that they're more expensive than the current technologies, and for very poor farmers, who number with their dependents about one and a half billion people in the world, they can't afford any of it unless they're helped to get started. So a major factor towards sustainable agriculture is actually assistance for the poorest farmers in the world in intensification of agriculture, but there are many other technological opportunities. There's also a dietary and behavioral uh, part of this as well, uh, in that beef, per, uh, beef consumption in particular is so wildly wasteful and detrimental to our own health, uh, and we've overshot so much in this country that there are ways to ease the global strains on the environment through behavioral change of uh, a less, in general, meat-intensive and especially beef-intensive diet. The third area is sustainable energy. I won't go on at length. This is uh, this, one of the centers of the world in sustainable energy technology. 
But basically, there is a whole portfolio of options. Uh, of course, everybody has their favorites, their guesses of what will work. Uh, and some people find anathema certain parts of the portfolio. I happen to favor nuclear power. I happen to favor carbon capture and sequestration. So I'm a believer in the likelihood of clean coal technology. But I also happen to favor large scale solar, uh, wind. Uh, I'm not such a fan myself of biofuels, although I remain to be convinced because I believe that the ecological consequences of even what are called second generation biofuels are likely to be incompatible with ecological management. But in any event, we have a large portfolio. We see from our own country, though, how hard it is to implement anything, partly because these technologies are more expensive than a good old dirty coal-fired power plant. And we have 25 coal-producing states in this country. And so we have a pretty hefty lobby to continue the cheap way that ignores all of the social costs for us and, and for the world. And also because it turns out every single power technology has externalities. Uh, we can't even agree to use the Mojave Desert uh, for, uh, for solar power because of its dangers for desert ecology. We can't agree to bring wind power from upstate New York down to New York City because the communities along the way don't like the power lines. We can't agree to have uh, wind turbines off the coast of uh, Massachusetts because they're unsightly and so forth. So unless we're able to resolve some of these issues, we're lost. And so far, we're a bit paralyzed. But there are a range of extremely promising transformations. Also with the automobile, which is a contributor of 15 to 20% of total carbon emissions, the transition to electric vehicles or other zero emission vehicles, I think, is uh, the technological leading edge that we're on right now. And, the ver and that transformation out of the internal combustion engine to electric uh, mobility also brings along many, many other powerful benefits of smarter vehicles, smarter traffic flow, and so forth. So I think there's some very exciting developments there. I could mention quickly, industrial ecology offers a host of answers to closing the industrial cycle, where currently there's massive emissions of toxics uh, and wastes, which actually are controllable through proper industrial design. Now, one thing that needs to be added to the solution list is the fact that there are no answers right now that are going to protect all major regions of the world from a lot of the change that's already underway and pretty much locked in place for the next 30 or 40 years. The drylands, as I said, is a leading edge of disaster, though we don't acknowledge it yet. There will be others, other regions that will face massive shocks on a regular basis from climate change. Some places will become unlivable. And so any list of policy solutions has to include answers to the question of compensation and management of large-scale regional shocks. We're very bad at that because probably one of the most important answers that we need is long-term migration. And the world just hates migration. 
Uh, and uh, we're getting worse and worse at it as we get more and more crowded because there aren't empty niches uh, to occupy. And generally these days when people try to move, they get shot at for their troubles. And we're not yet globally even discussing the reality of the fact that parts of the world won't simply uh, get through on some modest adaptation funding or some modest insurance to shocks, but are going to need something far bigger than that. So the question then is feasibility. If we can identify the major anthropogenic drivers, the food sector, the energy sector, uh, the industrial sector, if we can identify classes of technology, are there ways to find a path to sustainability? And I think that the problem needs to be defined in three parts. The first is, could we afford the kind of transformation that's needed? In other words, if one were to implement, if one could implement from a real resource point of view, a shift to renewable energy, a shift to electric vehicles, a shift to uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a uh, population, voluntary population stabilization, uh, a shift to sustainable modes of agriculture. Could this be affordable? Well, here, ladies and gentlemen, is for me one of the big paradoxes. If you try to add up the costs of pretty comprehensive list of changes that are needed, the extra costs of going to solar, the extra costs of going to wind, the extra costs of, uh, of uh, transformation to uh, electric vehicles, and so forth. It's really hard to make this sum up to more than a couple percent of GNP. It's really hard to make the case, in other words, that this breaks the bank or breaks the economy. It's pretty modest stuff if put against the long-term viability of the planet. And try as you might, you can't really create a credible scenario in which facing climate change destroys the economy or ends economic growth. And Larry Goulder, who's here, who runs some of the best models in this, can't make the world economy collapse. Uh, in his models by uh, implementing a sound uh, strategy on moving to a low-carbon economy. And the same is true of agriculture, and the same is true. Population stabilization, by the way, is so cheap. Contraception, it's really inexpensive. Family planning, absolutely inexpensive. Girls' secondary education, piece of cake, if we cared. And if we got organized, and if we recognize that the places where fertility rates remain six or seven or eight can't afford it on their own, and if we talked about this honestly, we wouldn't even notice it in the budget. Because you'd save, you know, don't send a few thousand troops to Afghanistan, and you save a few billion dollars. Remember, each, each soldier is a million dollars a soldier right now. Don't send 100,000, send 90,000, you got $10 billion. Believe me, you could do all the family planning and girls' education in all parts of the world easily for that.
but you won't find it in the budget right now because we don't have the money. So the first thing is you can't find big numbers. As hard as you try, these are solvable problems, especially if one takes a moderately optimistic view that the kinds of technologies I talked about are going to uh, be feasible at a large scale, but there's no strong argument that they wouldn't be. So the second part of this puzzle is the institutional part of the puzzle, which is a huge problem. We can't agree on anything anymore. I mean, what's the last time that Californians agreed on something? And our country can't agree on anything anymore. And we can't even discuss things honestly with the world right now. So we have a two-year process in Copenhagen which comes up with four pages of an unfinished paper. And if any of my students behave the way that 192 countries did, that they have a two-year assignment and then they come up with four pages and they say, excuse me, it's not finished yet, I need extra time, you would absolutely fail them. And this was an absolute failure. And the reason is that nobody wanted to talk honestly about any of it, including maybe even especially the United States government. Because President Obama didn't want to say anything before he had the Senate in hand. That's his whole strategy which I don't think is the right strategy, which is don't have any plans, just give some guidance to Congress and let the lobbies in Congress work it out. Because otherwise it'll be trapped, goes the theory, whereas I'd like to see our president say clearly what should be done and then go campaign for it. And <laughs> Now, there are very, uh, interesting and hard parts of this challenge. And I, let me just refer to uh, two that I've uh, talked about already briefly. The first is targeted technological change. Uh, again, Ken Arrow invented uh, the economics of knowledge and the economics of science and the distinct aspects of the public goods nature of science uh, and why we need public financing for uh, both basic research and many kinds of early stage pre-commercial applied research. And this time the problem's even tougher. Uh, we need not only the research, but we need to be able to target broad directions of technological change in energy and agriculture and so forth. We've done this in the past, usually for military reasons. Uh, this uh, was the Manhattan Project. It couldn't have been more targeted uh, than that. And of course, uh, the U.S. government has played a fundamental role in just about every scientific breakthrough uh, of modern times, and this campus uh, has been one of the, the great uh, propellers and amplifiers of federal funding uh, to move forward the information revolution, the digital revolution, uh, the biotechnology revolution, and so forth. We need to do this on a global scale, which adds a lot of complexity. Uh, and uh, we've not really come close to defining this. The closest we came in this country was Jimmy Carter's initiatives on uh, energy in the 1970s, and uh, your governor and mine uh, 
went on the roof of the White House and dismantled the solar panels and dismantled the U.S. effort uh, in energy technology uh, in uh, 1981. And now we're starting uh, again uh, 30 years later. Uh, we wasted 30 years of time when we should have been federally funding large-scale sustainability research. And we, we have lost a generation in doing this at huge cost to the national economy and at huge cost to the world economy. We're also not good at the second dimension of this, which is the international transfer uh, phenomenon. We simply can't find our way to give even tiny amounts of money to other countries, even the poorest of the poor in the world. And I think all of you know that our total aid budget, which is so much hated and bemoaned in this country, amounts to 20 cents per every $100 of US GNP. And of that 20 cents, uh, more than 10 cents is actually for war zones. And the amount of money that goes to Africa, which is the most heated debate right now, how much money we waste in Africa, we spend three cents out of every $100 of US GNP on help for the poorest continent in the world with 800 million people. Maybe it's up to four cents per $100 right now. It's about $6 billion a year uh, out of our 1.4, uh, our, uh, 1.4, our $14 trillion uh, GNP. So we're very bad at compensation. We're even worse at migration. And both of those are going to have to be part of any true sustainable development challenge. We need to move to a kind of global system of taxation, uh, at least on a small scale. What I'm advocating is two kinds of taxes that have been widely talked about for a long time. One is a carbon levy by country, or a greenhouse gas levy, which would simply uh, require countries to pay according to their greenhouse gas emissions. And if that were even done at a level of three or four dollars per CO2 ton equivalent, we'd uh, be uh, up to uh, $100 billion a year, which would pay for a lot of the global public goods that are needed. And the other transactions tax that we need is a financial transactions tax, uh, which, uh, uh, another, uh, uh, which, which is a long-standing proposition that uh, James Tobin, a great uh, economist at Yale, proposed more than 30 years ago. And it seems very close now to actually winning support. But at the last moment, I'm afraid that the White House and 10 Downing Street are going to agree on some kind of financial transactions tax and then take it away from the world's poor and put it into some fund as a, an anti-financial crisis fund uh, and use it to build up the FDIC and, and other things. So, there's been 30 years of debate, and on the verge of victory, we may lose it, uh, lose it once again. Now, the third and maybe the hardest part uh, of uh, all of this is the values, uh, and that is instilling uh, and developing and locating and centering the kind of human values that will make all of this feasible. Unless we have an ethics, an ethical system, a shared understanding globally uh, that is worldwide and also future 
oriented, we probably won't find our way to this. Naked power uh, and the naked interests uh, of our current alive generation will not be sufficient. Uh, if it's only what do we do, we're not going to find our way there because in the end, we may come close to deciding to do something and then we're going to get freaked out about China's rise to power. And we're not going to do it if they won't do it and China's going to say, we're not going to do it because the U.S. should do it first. And we've been at that game for more than a decade now. And it's likely to get worse as our anxiety levels rise even higher as we scramble for oil and other things. So unless we're able to step back and locate some fundamental values that are globally shared and that enable us to think clearly about the future and about stewardship and about the current generation's responsibility to the future, I believe we won't make it. That's why I find it so thrilling and fitting to be here and so excited to be giving a talk that is jointly sponsored by an ethics uh, department, by the economics department, and by an environment institute. Because that, to my mind, is the fundamental combination that's needed uh, to bridge the values, to bridge the economics and resource dimension, and to bridge the physical Earth system's understanding. I do believe, by the way, that universities are going to have to lead in this. This may be a little bit chauvinistic, but I've spent 30 years now closely observing government in all parts of the world. They will not do this. They can't do this. The level of understanding in the Congress is minuscule. The capacity of our executive branch to plan anything is nearly depleted at this point. The organization by intellectual discipline of our government ministries reflects an understanding that came somewhere from the Progressive Era and World War II. We don't have the structures right, and we don't have the expertise right inside government. And so the knowledge and the time perspective and the global outlook and the values that are needed to put this together, I believe, reside uniquely in great universities around the world. And I want our universities to see themselves as global problem solvers, uh, not simply as global observers, not simply as handicapping the race, uh, and not simply as saying, oh, aid doesn't work, or this doesn't work, or that doesn't work, or explaining our failures, but rather as design institutions finding the pathway to success. And I believe in the end that we not only can, from a material point of view, uh, achieve success, as I said, that's probably the easiest part of this puzzle, but I actually believe that in the end we can achieve success from a human and a values point of view, although that sometimes looks pretty difficult uh, in the age of the Tea Party movement and, uh, and, uh, and the like. And I always go back to uh, another uh, era, the era that I was born into, um, and a pivotal moment in history, which I think was a world-changing moment, 
And that's when uh, John Kennedy, after uh, seeing the prospect of global annihilation in the October Missile Crisis of 1962, uh, spent the last year of his life uh, achieving the first agreement with the Soviet Union for peace. And that was as unlikely then as it is for us to have a peace initiative with Iran or uh, to believe that we can find common cause with uh, places that seem like our most mortal uh, enemies uh, today. And President Kennedy, a young president uh, in uh, 1963, knew that he was fighting uh, against the grain and fighting against uh, the uh, spirit of the time, uh, especially in the wake of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when he went to convince uh, Americans of the possibility for peace. Um, he was so afraid of giving his peace speech, which was given on June 10, 1963, at American University's commencement of that year, that he didn't show it uh, to the rest of government. He and Sorensen uh, planned it, and it was only in the last uh, weekend that they showed it to the State Department and to the Defense Department because he was really afraid that they would kill the speech. Uh, and uh, he was able to give it, and it's one of the most important moving uh, statements about human purpose uh, that we've ever had. And if you haven't listened to it, that's your homework assignment from tonight. Go back to the internet, type in uh, John F. Kennedy American Commencement Address, and listen carefully. Uh, because what he was trying to do was to say, you know, we can do these things. He says, among other things, that our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man. And we shouldn't think that we're caught by uh, forces we can't control. Uh, which he called a, a defeatist uh, attitude, the belief that we're doomed uh, to, uh, to conflict. And one of the most famous lines from the speech, I believe, is uh, one of the most important ideas for our time. Uh, and it was talking about the ability to reach a global agreement uh, with a very diverse world. Uh, and he said, and uh, many of you will know it, so let us not be blind to our differences but let us direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can find the means for common diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all, inherit, we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures and we are all mortal. Thank you very much. questions could line up at the four microphones and then um, Professor Sachs will sort of rotate through the different microphones um, and since there are I see already a lot of people lined up if you could whether it's a comment or a question be to the point and be 
relatively brief. That would be appreciated. So. Please. Hi. Um, I, it's a good point that you make that we don't spend a lot of money on aid, but uh, I'd like to ask um, how do you, what do you think about the inherent problems of aid we had in the past in getting African countries to efficiently invest in capital? Um, secondly, I'd like to ask, uh, you pr seem to be propelling the geographic argument or explanation of poverty, um, but yet there's also countries in Africa, Botswana in particular, that have developed just fine despite um, uh, geographic problems that you might explain in your book. And similarly, there's other countries like the DRC and Sierra Leone, which have rich natural resources, um, and some would say would be geographically uh, advantaged that have failed. Yeah. It's time to reintroduce geography departments in all our universities uh, so that we really get to uh, a deeper understanding of this. You've repeated uh, a lot of uh, the myths that uh, are constantly uh, said about this issue. So let me just take an example. Uh, uh, and it's not a criticism of you, it's a criticism of uh, those who uh, started uh, this uh, silliness. It said, oh, Professor Sachs, uh, you think geography matters, but look at Botswana. Uh, Botswana became one of the richer countries in Africa, and geography had nothing to do with it. Okay, look at Botswana. Botswana is a desert country, uh, Kalahari Desert, that happens to have some of the richest diamonds uh, underneath it. Without that, uh, this was one of the poorest, sparsely inhabited places on the planet. And with the diamonds, uh, they were able to, because they properly used the resources, they were able to achieve several thousand dollars per capita because it was a tiny population and very rich natural resources. And institutionally, uh, the way that uh, this was uh, done with the uh, Anglo-American facilitated the investment of the resources in certain ways. There's nothing about that that uh, is uh, anything other than looking at a geographic reality and a resource reality combined with uh, an institutional uh, feature. And the point that I'm constantly making is that both of those things count. Now, the fact that a rainforest extraordinarily a difficult uh, environment uh, isn't developed, has its own long uh, discussion uh, because rainforests uh, almost everywhere in the world uh, are uh, sparsely inhabited except where they happen to sit on volcanic soils for very deep reasons. And the Congo Basin has its added complexities of profoundly high transport costs, heavy disease burden, whether it's trypanosomiasis, malaria, or other diseases. So these are cases where the moment you start working on development, practical issues in these places, you see a heavy geographical feature that needs to be overcome. And the point that I would like to emphasize on this is that any solutions to any of these problems, whether it's the geographical problems, the technological problems, and so forth, require a good, healthy mix of economics, understanding the physical Earth systems, understanding their relations to disease, to agriculture, to mining, uh, to government revenues, and institutions. 
So I don't want to oversimplify the problem. They're all part of the diagnosis and they're all part of a solution. The part that is so odd to me, so completely wrong-headed in my profession, not Ken Arrow's profession because he's much smarter than that, uh, but in the macroeconomics profession is this utter desire to say that geographical characteristics of desert, malaria, uh, soil nutrients don't matter. Doesn't matter if you're in a drought Sahel, it's all your institutions that count. This is absurd and needs to be put aside by grown-ups at this point, starting with the, your generation of scholars that can actually address practical problems and stop the generalities. The idea that it's only institutions and therefore it's basically your own fault if you don't get your act together is a, such a profound misunderstanding of the shape of the world that, and a dangerous one because it makes us fail to understand the practical problems that we face. Uh, Professor Sachs, um, you said that many global problems of terrorism, war, violence, are basically at their root actually due to poverty or hunger or lack of sustainability. And if that is the case, how do you explain that the terrorist leaders, the revolutionary leaders, the aggressors in the world, the ones who bring about civil wars and international wars, are usually privileged people. They are educated people, well-fed people, religious or ideological people. Poverty apparently does not cause their violence. They're not deprived. For example, 9-11 was carried out by privileged Saudis, not poor Yemenis. Right. Thank you. What I'm talking about is the places where these people pray and find their havens and find their bases of operation. And we're chasing now uh, terrorist groups through Yemen, through Somalia, through Sudan, through Ethiopia, through Afghanistan, which are impoverished places where people fight and, uh, and where children uh, fight uh, because people are hungry, easily manipulated, and highly unstable environments. So, of course, individual terrorists could be rich, like Osama bin Laden. Uh, they could be middle-class uh, kids that uh, went to uh, business school in London. I have no doubt about that, but if you look at places, regions of instability, where we're spending more than a trillion dollars now, these are places of, uh, these are places of poverty and deep unhappiness and uh, dead ends for a lot of people right now. And if we will, and if we don't address the core of this, we'll keep finding uh, new headlines, uh, this is America's geography lesson. Everybody learned in America two weeks ago that there's a country called Yemen. Uh, and uh, that uh, they learned a little bit about Yemen, just enough to know that we ought to bomb it. Uh, and the fact is, uh, yes, Yemen may have uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, why? Because uh, if you go to Yemen, uh, as, uh, as I've done, you find out that uh, it's impoverished. Uh, that there's great water stress, 
uh, that there's a rapid population growth pressing against the environment, that there's pervasive hunger, uh, and uh, therefore there's a constant level of violence in the society. And no matter how many drone missiles we throw at uh, the next Al-Qaeda leader, there'll be another one and another one and another one because we're not getting to the crux of this. And if we got to the crux of it, there no doubt still would be criminals uh, and psychopaths, and they would have to be uh, tracked down uh, through police actions and through uh, regular uh, controls, but we wouldn't be fighting these horrible wars that we're fighting with a growing area of instability and violence and large-scale death uh, that uh, we then turn into a military problem. So I would strongly distinguish between the individuals who often, even to be leaders, of course, have are educated, uh, are, uh, you know, what, whatever uh, reason, they could have a lot of wealth to organize their own rise to influence, but without a base of instability in these societies, whether it's the frontier provinces of Pakistan or whether it's in Afghanistan, which is laid low both by poverty and 30 years of war, or whether it's the water stress of uh, Yemen and Somalia and uh, Sudan and the Ogaden, this would not be in any way an existential threat uh, to us. This would be uh, a, a situation that would be utterly controllable, but nothing's controllable right now because we're taking an approach that, in my view, is guaranteed to spread and inflame instability rather than solve it. Yeah. Professor Sachs. Hi. Hi. Thank you for your, uh, for your great talk. You, two of the uh, sort of... Can you wave? Yeah. There, hi. Okay, good. Uh, two of the features of, two of the six features you described, I'm particularly interested in. The first is uncertainty, and the second is intertemporal nature of this problem, and, and the, the estimation of costs and benefits into the distant future. I'm really just interested, who would you recommend, who are the clearest thinkers that really address these issues, and what are the best resources for us here to learn more about the way to think about uncertainty and to discuss, you know, when we're predicting what's going to happen in the future, how can we, how can we be transparent about the limits of our knowledge of those predictions? The uh, greatest thinkers uh, about uncertainty and intertemporal dynamics are Kenneth Arrow and Kenneth Arrow. Um, and uh, quite literally, uh, uh, Professor Arrow uh, uh, developed the tools of understanding, first, uncertainty uh, itself. Uh, what are the measures, the dimensions uh, of uh, risk aversion, uh, and uh, how do they relate to the kinds of bets that we ought to be willing to take? Uh, and then uh, how that uncertainty, when it becomes irreversible, uh, sets up a, an options problem for society. What do we do to keep our options open? How much are we ready to invest uh, in those options when we're not sure about the implications? And so those are two seminal contributions on uncertainty. And then the uh, greatest uh, exposition of intertemporal dynamics is by uh, Professor Kenneth Arrow uh, in uh, 
a great arrow on public, a great uh, essay on public economics with uh, with Mordecai Kurtz, which showed how to use uh, formal uh, analysis to do dynamic optimization across generations. That's not the last word on this, uh, but it's uh, one of the great first words uh, on this, uh, following a, a, an equally seminal paper in 1928 by uh, Frank Ramsey. So the questions are also philosophical uh, in a deep way. Uh, there's a fundamentally odd problem that even with all our institutions and long-term bonds and everything else, ultimately, it's only the people alive today that determine everything about the future. Uh, and uh, we barely think about that in a coherent way right now. And another great essay that I would uh, recommend uh, is uh, a, an essay by uh, a philosopher, Hans Jonas, Hans Jonas, uh, who was a great political philosopher at, uh, at NYU. Uh, uh, and I'm uh, blocking on uh, the exact title. Uh, oh, the, the, maybe it is the theory of responsibility. Uh, it's definitely of responsibility, the theory of responsibility. And he argues something really eye-opening uh, and I think uh, very thought-provoking for us which is that uh, he says all great ethical systems in the world, uh, from uh, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, the, the uh, texts of the First Testament, uh, the uh, Confucian order and so forth, were about contemporaneous behavior and pretty much local behavior, uh, about loving thy neighbor or not about how to treat thy neighbor. And then thy neighbor wasn't just a metaphor, it was literal because the scale of society was very local and immediate. And what Jonas says in the theory of responsibility is we need a whole new ethic about the future because our traditional ethical systems haven't really handled this unique phenomenon basically since the nuclear uh, age and since the Anthropocene uh, of a fundamentally new relationship to the future, and that is our capacity to destroy it. Uh, and also, I would say, our need to think through future values on their behalf. We hold a kind of proxy vote for the future. And it's not just about trade-offs between us and the future. It's even if we hold as given our resource base, we make choices between leaving the future certain kinds of physical capital or certain kinds of natural capital. We have to make those choices on behalf of the future, and so we have to think seriously about what the future would want. Now, how do we do that? Where do we do that? What institutions do we have? I want the President of the United States every year to give a State of the Future address, where we start thinking systematically about what we're doing for the next generation. And I think that would at least help us to clarify some of these ethical concepts in ways that we've barely begun to do. Please. I, I, I heard there were four microphones. I was with oh, maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, no. okay. Up here? Cool. Uh, thank you, Professor Sachs. Oh, good. Um, Wave. Yeah, good. Uh, in today's New York Times, there was an article about uh, the U.S.'s uh, 
concern about sending aid to Somalia because of their concern that it may end up in the hands of terrorists. Um, in general, how real is this concern in developing areas? And if it is real, what's the best way to combat it? I think that, uh, first of all, places like Somalia were uh, allowed to go awfully far uh, in, into uh, uh, collapse. Remember, we, uh, in a not very clever way, in a clever way, started to intervene for humanitarian relief uh, 18 years ago, and then in an unclever way decided to try to arrest a, a, one of the warlords and got our helicopter shot down and got out of Somalia. Uh, and 18 years later, Somalia still doesn't have a national government, uh, and it, uh, well, it has a national government, but it doesn't have a national government with any writ uh, behind, beyond a building or two. Uh, and uh, it uh, is a source of uh, high seas piracy uh, and a, uh, an area of uh, deep instability. We shouldn't wait so long. It makes everything much harder. In general, on this specific challenge, I would listen to uh, the World Food Program more than I would listen to our own uh, government uh, officials on this, or I would take the cue of those that are deeply on the ground, at least. That's what I really mean to say. Uh, and if the World Food Program deems that it's possible to do its work, uh, I would uh, take their advice because I know uh, the organization well. They're, they're quite heroic. Uh, and uh, the costs of, uh, of uh, abandoning uh, the effort are absolutely lots of lives lost and increased instability and, uh, and disarray. Now, in general, let me say one thing about help in places like this. We're launching at the Earth Institute in partnership with what's called COMESA, which is the, uh, the community of East and Southern African countries something uh, we're calling the Drylands Initiative. And it is a reflection of this concern that the Drylands have just fallen off the edge of survival. And so we're finding uh, sites in Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, northern Uganda, northern Kenya, where we'll try to implement ground-based, demonstrated uh, solutions, integrated systems for pastoralist and semi-pastoralist populations. The trick to aid in these places, in my view, I shouldn't use the word trick, but I think the tactic of aid, the solution, is to be ground-based, community-driven, monitorable, and measurable uh, in uh, the way that assistance is given. No cash, uh, but only <laughs> basic commodities, construction materials, uh, health supplies, uh, and so forth. And this is what we do in the Millennium Villages Project with the very, very powerful results. And it's what we're going to try to do in uh, these dryland countries that are in crisis. But the point I would make in general about aid, which is a matter of so much debate, is that don't ask the question, does aid work or not work? Ask the question of how you can design institutions that can be effective under particular circumstances. So think very practically, how can you get the bed nets to children? How can you get a clinic functioning? Uh, how can you increase <coughs> agricultural production? Uh, and if the bullets are flying, it's, a, it's much, much harder. 
but in a lot of places, even in war-torn places, there are large parts of such countries and regions where the bullets aren't flying, but they sure will if we don't do something to help. And we ought to intervene, but in smart systems manner to help local communities and do it in a way that is verifiable, monitorable, and measurable. And I think we could have a huge impact at a tiny fraction of uh, the cost of how we now intervene. Remember in Afghanistan, we're spending this year $100 billion on the military and about $1 billion maximum on peaceful development. You can't think that a ratio of 100 to 1 could begin to approximate the right answer for an impoverished country like that. And until we get that ratio into some kind of order, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it will be continued tragic consequences. And when you think about the fact that for a million dollars, you can help a whole village to grow a decent crop, to have safe water, to have a functioning clinic, to have the children in school, for a million dollars you can do that, and yet that's the cost of one U.S. soldier for a year. We've got this completely mixed up. And if you look at how this decision was taken, by the way, there was a picture in the New York Times of President Obama and uh, 17 members, it was either uh, the president and 16 advisors or with 17 advisors on the New York Times front page a few weeks ago when they were taking the decision to do this, there wasn't one person in the room that had development knowledge. There wasn't one person in the room that had local knowledge. It was generals uh, and it was security types. And we're never going to get the right answer this way. Please. Okay. I'm not quite sure how to, how to state this, but what I don't understand is how can we afford to do all these things? I mean, the war in Afghanistan, they borrowed $700 billion to do that. You know, the stimulus package, they borrowed whatever, $800 billion to do that. They borrow, borrow, borrow. Every time the government says, hey, we got a new way to spend some more money, it seems to me that it's just like, well, I maxed out my credit card, but now I got another one, and I'm gonna, you know, and I'm gonna do this new thing. It seems to me that like the U.S. can't really afford to do all these things yeah. that they used to do, and they don't really have the money, and that, but they wanna present themselves as being this all-powerful state. But yeah. can we actually do it? Okay. So let me just give you again uh, one datum that I think is relevant, and that is that this year's defense budget, which is a misnomer, this year's military budget uh, is uh, $768 billion. It equals almost the cumulative total of military outlays of all the rest of the world combined. When Gates went to testify last week on this budget, to my mind, as I was uh, watching, listening, uh, reading uh, the testimony, he had more than he could have ever dreamt, and he didn't even know how to ask for it. He said, uh, well, we need this amount for all of the potential uncertain capabilities that need to come up. In other words, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this stuff, uh, but, uh, you know, it's all going to be great stuff. Yeah. In, in the meantime, 
our total development aid budget is about $28 billion. So $28 billion versus $768 billion. Mm -hmm. To my mind, this makes no sense at all from a narrow security point of view. Well, I understand and, that. Okay, but it's so this, the, but my I answer the to you, but the my, my, wait, 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 let me finish now. All right. Okay. My answer to you would be, we can't properly afford this military approach, and it doesn't lead us to security. If we cut $300 billion off of that uh, through wasteful weapon systems, uh, destructive contracting, uh, and uh, wasteful wars, then we could at least double our development assistance or more because we'd be saving an enormous fraction uh, in addition. But then comes another point that I want to stress, and that is the following. We are, now nobody likes to hear this, but we are the least taxed of all of the high-income world by a substantial margin. And I believe that we're paying a frightful consequence for this. Uh, we are unable to spend on higher education. We're unable to spend on the poor. We're unable to spend on infrastructure. We're unable to spend on climate because our federal tax take is 18% of GNP in a good year. This year, it's about 15% of GNP. And if you add up Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, defense and uh, interest payments on the debt, it eats up the entire tax take of the federal government. So everything else we do is on borrowed money. And my point, which of course is the least popular point uh, in uh, America, is we should be taxing ourselves more as well so that we could once again have a civilized government that could actually do things for ourselves not for spending more on wars, but for having a proper education system, for having a proper health system, for having a proper infrastructure, and for moving to sustainable technologies. Thanks. Maybe we'll take uh, one, two, three, and then I think uh, we've reached the, uh, the, the limits. Thanks. Professor Sachs, you put forth the idea that the solution should come out of institutions such as universities. And yet you talk often of governments causing many of the problems, having much of the money and control, along with corporations. How do you see that we should bring these two together? So we do have a, a, fundamental, uh, a, a fundamental crisis of how uh, our institutions are functioning right now. Not only do we have political paralysis in Washington, but we know that it's soaked in money and the Supreme Court just opened up uh, the spigot even wider uh, in, a, in a truly mind-bogglingly wrong-headed uh, wrong uh, opinion. And by the way, if you want to read a miserable opinion, get online uh, and read this United Citizens opinion and read the uh, dissent by Stevens. Uh, and understand what a disastrous majority uh, we have on the Supreme Court right now. So we have a big problem, uh, obviously, in getting the pieces right and at a late hour. I don't think it can all be sorted out. What I would like the universities to do, especially, is lead with uh, ideas and solutions 
with demonstration efforts, with partnership with business in the best way, which is showing how technologies can solve problems, uh, which I think is, uh, again, this university, uh, as, as much as any in the world, has uh, shown many examples of that. Um, and to propose ideas based on values as well, values of, uh, of uh, sustainability, longevity, uh, and, uh, and global. Uh, and, a, and a global ethic. And we're going to face a, another problem of overhauling our political institutions over time. They're not, they're not in sync with our current needs. Uh, and uh, it's, a big, it's a big challenge. It's not a simple problem. Uh, and perhaps we're really now feeling the, uh, the Maybe the fever will break and we'll get back to some problem solving in Washington. But I think there are some intrinsic features right now of having the shortest political cycle of any major country in the world. We have a two-year political cycle. Uh, and we can't, because of FBI checks, we can't even get a government in place in the first year. Uh, and by the time you have a team in place in a government, then you're running for uh, midterm elections. And that means you can't do anything anymore. Uh, and this is a big problem for America, and it's probably late in the hour to uh, try to ferret out all the, all the solutions to it. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that aid in the form of family planning and contraception and education of women and girls is relatively cheap compared to other things that our government decides to spend their money on. Um, and therefore, the problem of population control is easily solvable. And so I was wondering what you have to say about the sustainability of this solution, um, considering how difficult it can be to effectively shift culture in those communities regarding family and sex um, in a moral and respectful way towards um, a set of values that would support population control. Um, and especially with regard to solutions that involve Western technology, I was wondering how you would respond to someone who called you an, a cultural imperialist. Um, I disagree. Uh, and on, on the question of the demographic transition, I, I don't know of any significant case where uh, a voluntary reduction of fertility got underway that was reversed. I can't think of a single example of that. And what I see all over the world is unmet need, where uh, mothers want contraception, they want access, instead they face stockouts, uh, lack of uh, trained personnel, lack of uh, se culturally sensitive access to clinics uh, through trained community health workers and so forth. This isn't cultural imperialism. I wouldn't demand or press anything on anybody. Uh, I want to underscore voluntary as fundamental. But what I see is exactly the opposite. I, pe I see people stuck in poverty, what Paul Farmer calls structural violence of poverty, which means no choice at all. Uh, it means the uh, degradation and uh, extreme duress of being so impoverished that you can't afford the most uh, to meet the most basic needs for your body or for your family or for your children. And so I regard that as a tragedy and uh, not as a matter of cultural imposition, but as a matter of helping people meet uh, their own aspirations. Please. Uh, 
First of all, thank you for the talk. Um, my question would be like, do you think poverty should be for, solved first before the poor countries can um, design ecologically sustainable um, path? Or do you think these matters are too interconnected to be solved separately? I think in general, when you actually look at uh, solutions, you find that uh, generally they best go together because we need to upgrade agriculture, for example, or to help uh, poor places upgrade agriculture. And that should be done in an ecologically sustainable manner. It's no good to intensify agriculture if you're gonna run out of water uh, or destroy the riverways uh, within 10 or 15 years. And so thinking about the sustainability together with the poverty reduction strikes me as the best approach. And in uh, the African context, one of the exciting possibilities, of course, is solar power, uh, because uh, there's uh, the uh, most abundant solar radiation in the world in some of the poorest places in the world, like the Sahel. And so there's an opportunity to bring electrification in a sustainable manner uh, and therefore have the double win of development and sustainability at the same time. And I think we ought to maximally look at, at that combination. Maybe the last question. I'm not sure if I have a question. It's more what bothers me. So, so pr the problem that I have is when I read your book, when I listen to you, it looks like we can use what we have in the sustainable world to have this path to um, you know to a sustainable world. Meaning that you know it seems that listening to you, all what we have today can be applied, can be changed. Um, you know to to go to a, a, a sustainable future. And it seems to me that we need to change everything, basically. We need to change our economic model. We need to change our political model. We need to change our consumer model. We need to change our cultural models. So two examples. In, in your books, and, and you talk about that tonight, you say that market forces will not work. And, you know, and, and I'm sorry, that what won't work? Market forces yeah, will yeah, not yeah. work. Right. But for me, Myself, it's even, and, and, and you, are, uh, you, you strongly believe that we can achieve uh, a worldwide economic, economic prosperity uh, with uh, a, a sustainable world. And a lot of people, especially in Europe, would not agree with you. Um, but, you know, sometimes I even think Wall Street will die one day when they realize that we need five planets and we have only one how we are going to value the future of company uh, when we need to take into account, you know, the limited resources that yeah. we have. And, and, you know, second part, you, you talk, you talk, you, are, you have written a beautiful article, and you mentioned that in uh, American Scientific about, you know, the, the weaknesses of the American political system. And, and, but, but in your book, your last chapter is um, the power of one. But I listen to you, and, 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 and you say that uh, about fighting poverty, right? We can only fight, um, fight poverty if we, we act as one nation. But, but you say at the same time that it's very difficult, you know, even in the state. You, you say that again about Copenhagen, that it was a failure. So when I see about that, you know, I, I don't see how we can, we have, for me, we have to change everything if yeah. we want to have a life, and I don't know that. Okay. Let me uh, try, to, uh, try to explain very briefly, again, the, the points that I was making. First, I believe strongly in a market economy 
for being able to do many wonderful things, uh, including right now helping to lift uh, three billion people rapidly out of poverty, uh, including a, a nearly unbelievable feat of enabling China to have a 20-fold increase of per capita income over the last 30 years, roughly, uh, basically driven by market economic forces. So I am not interested in overturning the market economy. What I am interested in doing is taming it because it can't solve certain problems on its own. So I'm a, basically advocating a mixed economy and a mixed uh, set of institutions. Certain things the market economy won't do by any means. Directed technological change, for a lot of reasons, require public and private actions. Uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions absolutely requires a uh, public consent and a <clears throat> pretty thorough design of public strategies that a little bit harness the market and to a lot extent uh, contravene the market. But th what I tried to say by focusing on the food system and the energy system was to say it's not everything it's actually fairly focalized, important, crucial, of course, but not everything about our lives. And we ought to try to find ways that we can still use electricity uh, because that's really good. That was really a clever thing to figure that out a uh, hundred years ago. And the problem isn't electricity, for example. The problem is a coal-fired power plant. So we want more electricity, but we don't want it uh, through burning coal that emits the carbon dioxide. So what I'm really suggesting is targeting, focusing on the core problems, focusing on the boundaries of farm systems, of, uh, of uh, the derived margins of the rainforest, of the opening of pasture lands to control that, of uh, carbon dioxide emissions, uh, of uh, a transport system, uh, which is uh, clearly in, in many important ways at this point dysfunctional after a hundred years of the internal combustion engine. And what I'm really saying is don't throw out everything by any means because uh, the market economy, for example, has done absolutely miraculous things in complex social organization uh, and raising productivity and motivating uh, positive change, but it fails to do certain things. It fails ecologically and it fails for the poorest of the poor and it's not so great by itself on issues of population. And so for those, we have to find targeted approaches that don't destroy what we have and what we want, but do focus in on the challenges as we can identify and measure them. And so I'm also emphasizing quantification, scale, and uh, trying to think through as systematically as possible uh, the challenges and where they come from and what we might do. And as I said, I do believe that industrial ecology, energy systems, and agriculture systems define a very significant, and population, define a very significant proportion of the problems. But that's actually a, a, a modest part of uh, our material life. A lot can go on. Uh, in that context, 
And I'd like a world in which people don't have to worry about turning on the, the lights as much if the grid is powered by renewable energy. And, and I think that uh, that would be uh, a, a, a desirable way to go. Now, two things uh, that are added, and, and you may say it's contradictory, but I don't think it is. Uh, one is that our politics are obviously not well-tuned to those challenges. And I find paradoxical the fact that um, the resource magnitude of what's needed, I don't believe is huge. If you added up what I'm saying and came to the conclusion this is 40% of our production that needs to be devoted to these solutions, then I'd agree with your uh, impulse entirely. That's fundamental. But my argument, it's an empirical argument, is that this is 2% or 3% of our income that's needed. So this isn't overturning everything about society, about our freedoms, about uh, a market economy, but it's actually controlling the, the very risky, damaging parts of this. Second, as I've said, I believe that ending extreme poverty is also a bargain proposition, but the truth is, and you know, you, uh, one is uh, right to point it out, that I've emphasized it's under 1% of the income of the rich world, and I've tried to show that not in an ethereal black box way, but in a very specific way. Here are the things to be done in education, in schools, clinics, community health workers, medicines, uh, irrigation uh, um, equipment, and so forth, and tried to quantify it. As, and people can look at those estimates, they can double them, they can have them, and so forth. It just doesn't seem like a huge amount. Now, you say, but we're not doing it, and I would agree with you. And our institutions and our values and our understanding of this are insufficient. And our global problems, uh, our ability to cooperate globally, our, our ability is very limited. This is clear. So these are societal, institutional, political, social, value, and cultural problems, to be sure. The material part of this, I think, is not the huge challenge. The huge challenge is can't we live together uh, in, a, uh, in, in a more fruitful way? It's easy to say, well, no. We can't. And when I propose solutions, most of the time people say, well, no, that's impossible. And my uh, experience is that once in a while those solutions get tried and they prove to be successful very often. For instance, treating people with AIDS or fighting malaria or other very practical things or helping farmers to get seeds and fertilizer and so forth in nitrogen-stressed sub-Saharan Africa and thereby doubling or tripling the food supply. My belief is that this kind of broad transformation takes decades of hard work, scientific leadership, and advocacy. And it's disappointing, but it doesn't happen as quickly as we want. The fight against slavery took 70 years, actually 63 years, from the founding of the Quaker Friends maybe, uh, what is it, from something like 1771 to uh, 1834. 
in the British Empire to outlaw slavery. It was more than 60 years of battle of Wilberforce and others. Long effort. The uh, fight against uh, imperial rule went from uh, roughly uh, 1900 to 1947 uh, before it was achieved in India. That was a long struggle. The fight for civil rights was decades long in this country uh, and in important ways continues. So perhaps we shouldn't feel shocked uh, at how difficult it is, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that fundamental changes happen in society the same way. And things that seem impossible become inevitable and commonplace and almost unimaginable that they didn't happen before. If we had all the time in the world, I'd say instead of this talk, let's go out and have a good cup of coffee uh, and chat because it's all going to happen. I'm not worried about this stuff happening. I'm worried about it happening in time. That's the problem. Because in these cases, we've got thresholds and tipping points and 10 to 20 million people dying every year and war and the risks of calamity. So our problem is a timing problem, I think. Not a, fun, not a problem worse than that. But it is a problem where we're at threat of irreversibilities and thresholds, both physical thresholds and, I fear, social thresholds. The social, social threshold that terrifies me is 1914, falling into some great conflict, which we'll never get out of because we won't even have time to notice it this time around. That's what frightens the hell out of me is that we waste our time until we have an explosion that's beyond control because we couldn't find a way to invest tiny fractions of 1% of GNP in good faith for hungry, poor people, and they came not to like us very much. That just seems stupid to me. How insanely greedy can it be that our country has fought for 40 years since the 0.7% of GNP standard was put in place. We fought for 40 years to fight, to try even to avoid 7 tenths of 1% of our GNP to try to do the right thing. Instead, we've created a whole industry in academia and business and the media to attack aid rather than to try to make it work because we don't even want to spend 1% of our income to help people who are dying before our eyes if we care to open our eyes. So that's the biggest problem that I feel, which is that we will run out of time before we get to the solutions. These solutions are not that hard, and someday they're going to be viewed as obvious. And I just hope we get there before it's too late. Thanks very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.